0: Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep practical wisdom.
1: Tonight I'd like to talk about Art, science, and the meditative journey, mostly about the meditative journey, but this a little bit about art and science. Uh, Some time ago, I was reading an article about the Russian artist Kandinsky, and it was very interesting to me. Of course, I had heard his name and was a little familiar with his paintings, but really didn't know much about him at all. He lived in the late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, Russian painter. And he was credited as being the first painter to paint purely abstract art. And so the whole movement of abstract art really uh, came out of his uh, creativity. When I was reading about his life, I was struck by the similarities between his life as an unfolding and developing artist and the path and insights of meditation. There were some striking parallels. And it made me reflect that in a very real, a very real way, we are all artists. We are creating our lives... <laughs> on the canvas of the world. And when we do that with awareness, with understanding, we're expressing the same creativity as an artist does with paint or with music or with words. The first step in both the development of an artist and the development of a yogi, of a meditator, is developing a heightened awareness of the present moment. So we've all heard that a lot. And a lot of our practice is just that. For Kandinsky, and this was what was really interesting, he seemed to have been born with this sensitivity. It said that when he was just 13, he took some money from his allowance and bought a box of tubes of paint and as they squeezed the colors out of the tube he was so sensitized to color that each color uh, aroused in him different intense emotions like just seeing the color he described how his whole being was filled with different emotions depending on the particular color On retreat, a very similar thing happens. You know, gradually, as our minds quiet down and we're not quite so lost in the rush, the torrent of thoughts in the mind, we begin to experience, at least to some extent, this same quality of sensitivity. And you may have noticed, certainly, those of you who have been here the metta retreat, and even for those of you who have just come, as the mind gets quieter, it's as if we see things and we hear things and we smell things with a much greater vividness. We're really present for our experience, the ordinary experiences of our lives, sights and sounds and smells and tastes, you know, and sensations in the body and thoughts, we're more there for it. The great French novelist Proust, he really described this process very clearly. He said, the very real energy, the very real voyage of discovery consists not in seeing new landscapes, but in having new eyes. It's the same landscape wherever we go, but the voyage of discovery is learning to see in a new way. And that's precisely what we're doing on retreat. One of the simplest ways of nurturing this sensitivity is something that's incredibly simple. And yet for most of us, somewhat difficult to do. And that is, we become more present to our senses simply by slowing down a bit. We spend so much of our lives in fast forward. You know, we're simply rushing from one activity to the next, and it's very rare to actually be going through our lives genuinely, completely settled back into the moment. When we do, when we can settle back in that way, then our senses do become alive. Now, just the, the, the subtleties of light and shadow, you know, the nuances of sound, when we actually feel, you know, completely the warmth of the sun on the skin or the wind. Again, from one of our great artists, Georgia O'Keeffe, she said, to really see... And she was a great seer. She said, to really see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. But our culture is not too big into taking time with things. You know, we're, (laughs) not only is it very speedy, we're so enamored of being distracted. Just coming to the airport from... Barry going to Boston Airport, on the Mass Pike, there are now signs that say, it's something like, under a certain age, texting while you're driving is some big fine. I mean, even that a sign is needed... (laughs) I just saw it. It was just hard to fathom. You know, we're so addicted. So slowing down. You know, so we so we really are settled back. This slowing down doesn't mean getting tense and it doesn't mean tightness. It doesn't mean that we're holding ourselves back as if we're reining ourselves in. That's not what it's about. It's about Settling easily, relaxing back into the moment. It's very simple. When we relax back into the moment, simply being mindful of what we're knowing in that moment, it's not complicated. But it goes against our conditioning, which is why a retreat is a place and an opportunity to practice this. So on the one hand, we want to practice and remember just this easeful relaxing back in the moment. And on the other hand, paying attention to the feeling of rushing. Because when is the feeling of rushing, that is a very good signal. That's like a tremendous feedback to us that we're not settled back into the moment. What is rushing? It's that kind of top, it's an energetic toppling forward. And it doesn't have to do with speed. We can be rushing, moving very slowly. And a good place to observe this... Is to just watch your energy, to feel your energy, even if you're moving reasonably slowly. When the lunch bell rings, (laughs) I mean, I just see it, you know, walking very mindfully. You (laughs) You can just feel kind of the pull of lunch. every time you become aware of this feeling and i would i would make it a practice have the intention to keep a lookout for the feeling of rushing because it it happens many times a day you know when we're just toppling forward into the next activity into the next step it can even be into the next breath where our minds are leaning forward have the intention to pay attention to the feeling of rushing because it is a very good signal. And then in that moment, practice just settling back. Okay, can I be here just in this moment without that forward lean? When we do settle back in this way, there is always a feeling of relief. Now, there's a certain tension involved in both leaning forward and staying upright. There's, There's a kind of tricky balance there. When we're back in the moment, when we're settled back, there's a feeling of ease, there's a feeling of relief. This will take practice. It's so simple, but it's very interesting to observe just how often we're in that place of rush. And so a little mantra you can use throughout the day to remind you to settle back is to remember that, especially in moving about, the mantra can be each step. Just each step is worthy of your attention. It's not we're taking this step in order to get to the next step. Is this clear? (laughs) It's so simple, but it's so difficult because of our habitual way of doing things. You will see an amazing depth of practice happen naturally if you practice in this way. It's each step. There's a continuity of mindfulness there. There's a depth of concentration there. But it takes practice. That's why I'm emphasizing it so much. There's an interesting connection, going back to the art for a moment, between the perception of beauty and the Dharma. And we all know this just from times when we're appreciating beauty, and it might be a work of art, but it might more, more often be in nature. You know, when we're watching a beautiful sunset or we're just kind of looking at the hills and appreciating, you know, the light on the hills, whenever we're aware of beauty, it's very rare that there'll be a feeling of rushing then. You know, it's somehow in our perception of beauty that helps us to relax back in the moment where we're really open to it, we're receiving it, we're at peace in that moment. And it's why in many places in the suttas, the Buddha and other enlightened beings would praise the beauty of nature as a good environment for practice because it does help to calm and settle the mind. Okay, so after years of living with this very heightened sensitivity, going back to Kandinsky, he went to an art exhibit in Moscow of the French Impressionist painters. Painters. And he was looking at one of the famous paintings of Monet in the series of haystack paintings. You know, over a few years, Monet painted haystacks at different times of day and different seasons, and it was extraordinary. How it just showed very different realities depending on the season, the time. So Kandinsky was standing in front of one of these haystack paintings and he was looking at it very intently, and then all of a sudden, as he described it, the whole notion of haystack disappeared. There was no haystack. There were just the experience of the thousands of different brushstrokes of color. So the conventional reality was gone, and he was seeing on a whole new level. And he said, you know, this was all in this article, he said that at first he found this non-recognition of conventional reality very disturbing. You know, it was like the ordinary world was gone. And all of a sudden he was just in a completely different space. He said he found it both painful and disorienting. But then he began noticing how compelling this new level of perception was. And this is, this is quoting, quoting him. He said, I surrendered to the unexpected power of the colors previously hidden from me, which exceeded all my dreams. The painting took on a fairy tale power of splendor. So I don't know if you can just picture the scene of, you know, he's standing there in kind of the usual world of perception and suddenly this work of art Draws him into a whole different level. Conventional reality disappears. So, what does this have to do with us? And what does this have to do with our practice of meditation? With close, careful attention, the haystack disappeared. And all that remained was a world of color, which was no longer limited by preconceived forms, okay? In just the same way, when we look closely, when we look that intently and carefully at what we call self, at this mind and body, the conventional notion, the conventional idea, the conventional image we have of self, just like Haystack, disappears. And we begin to experience the reality of this mind and body on a whole different level. We go from the concept, from the idea of self, and we all have created a lot of concepts and ideas of who we are, of who we take ourselves to be. When we are looking, feeling, being with our experience in the same way that Kandinsky was looking at that painting, we drop down from the level of concept to the level of direct experience of what's actually happening in each moment. we begin to experience what the Buddha in a well-known sutta described as the all. Okay, he said bhikkhus. And bhikkhus in its most general context, although it's often translated or refers to monks, bhikkhunis or nuns, but in its more general application... Bhikkhus actually refers to anyone who's walking on this path. And so, when we read the text or hear in the Buddha saying Bhikkhus, he's really talking to us. So he said, Bhikkhus, I will teach you the all. And what Bhikkhus is the all? It is the eye and visible objects, the ear and sound, nose and scent, tongue and taste, body and sensations mind and mind objects, this bhikkhus is the all. And then he challenged the bhikkhus, can anybody describe something other than that, something outside of the all? Now, this is pretty amazing. And we think our lives are so complicated, you know, and so complex, and this and that only six things are ever happening. (laughs) In any moment, it's only one of six things that are happening. There's a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, or some object of mind, you know, a thought, an emotion, an image. But when we're in the world of concept of self, oh, we create the most amazing dramas about our lives with all the attendant emotions connected with them. This is the power, the freeing power of meditation when we can see carefully enough what is actually going on and we see, just just like Kandinsky, Haystack disappeared and it was just the world of color, not limited by preconceived forms. We can drop into the level of the all and we begin to experience what we call self in a very different way. So just as, as a simple demonstration of this, and most many of you are very old yogis, so this won't come as big news to you, but just for the fun of it, if you hold your hands together, just no, no particular way, just holding your hands together. Now, just imagine asking somebody, you know, on the streets of Woodacre to do this and then ask them what they feel, probably. Most people would say, oh, I feel my hands. There's no sensation called hand, right? What is it that we actually feel? We feel warmth, we feel pressure, we feel tingling, right? There's no hand. We don't feel hand. We think hand. We have an image hand. But the direct experience is just of these sensations. Now you might ask, so what? Why, why is this important? It's actually very important because the concepts we have of things don't change. Hand today, hand tomorrow, hand yesterday. And to the extent that we're living in the world of concepts as we do a good part of the time, we're deluded in the perception that things are more or less lasting. But when we're on the level of direct perception, when you're feeling the sensations, and we're really there for it, those sensations are changing momentarily. And so we're beginning to enter into the world of change. And it's precisely in this world of change of perceiving it that clearly, that directly, that moment to moment, that deconditions clinging, that deconditions grasping. So that is the doorway to freeing our minds. We still use the world of concepts, so we can still talk of haystacks, and we can talk of hands, and we can talk of self. And we use we use these concepts for everyday communication. No problem with that. But are we locked into that world, oblivious to the reality underneath, or are we simply using that terminology for conventional ease? Someone once asked a Tibetan teacher... Is the self real? And so this is what he said. It's not that you're not real. We all think we're real. And that's not wrong. You are real. But you think you're really real. (laughs) You exaggerate it. (laughs) That's the problem. <laughs> we are real. We interact with one another and we live our lives in just the very ordinary way. But we also think we're really real. We exaggerate because we're not seeing, we're not feeling, we're not experiencing the realities underneath. So this is what our practice is about. There's a very interesting connection between this growing understanding and growing awareness of selflessness. We could say lack of self-centeredness. Just in thinking about this, I was trying to imagine whether the absence of self-centeredness, that idea, whether an absence can grow. (laughs) But that's what happens. The absence of self-centeredness grows. We're We're no longer so locked in to this idea of self. And as that happens in our practice, simply from relaxing into the moment, connecting with one of the six things that's arising. So it's not complicated. It's just relaxing and being there moment after moment We begin to experience this greater sense of selflessness. And out of that is born a very natural responsiveness to the world. Because we're not so defended, we're not so protected. And this is the basis for compassion. What Kamala was speaking about last night. Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, who was one of the great Tibetan Dzogchen masters of the last century... He said, when you realize the empty, the void nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So there's this beautiful connectivity of the wisdom of selflessness and the manifestation of compassion. And all of this happens when we drop down from the world of concept to the world of our direct experience. Okay, so the question that really arises for us is how do we do this? You know, I think it's not that difficult to understand conceptually. But how do we put it into practice? So at this juncture, the Buddha's teachings are just invaluable because he's so clear and so direct and so explicit in his instructions of what we need to do to realize this, to actualize this understanding Now, the art of the practice is its creative aspect. The science of the practice is its lawful aspect. And one of the meanings of the word dharma is law. It means the law of things, the truth of things. Just as there are the physical laws of nature, of biology or chemistry or physics, there are also laws governing the mind and how the mind works. There are laws governing the arising of suffering and freedom from that suffering so it's not it's not haphazard it's not accidental our practice is exploring and understanding for ourselves the dharma the laws of the mind and as with any science there needs to be a methodology How do we do this? How can we replicate the Buddha's great experiment in awakening? One of the clearest set of instructions that the Buddha gave is in the Satipatthana Sutta, which we've talked about, that's often translated as the four ways of establishing mindfulness, or the four foundations of mindfulness. And it's quite an amazing text. Now, it's just a few pages. But first, the Buddha declares, very explicitly, this is the direct path to liberation. That's no small claim. <laughs> I'm saying, okay, do you want to be liberated? This is the path. These are the instructions you should follow. But he doesn't just leave us hanging there. Then he goes on to describe quite explicitly how to put them into practice. So the Sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, has a very interesting and precise order, you know, and pattern. First, there is a very specific instruction on what it is that we should be observing or feeling, So, for example, in the first section of the sutta where it's mindfulness of the body, this this is the first way of establishing mindfulness, using the body as a vehicle, there are quite a few sets of instructions of how to do this. There's mindfulness of the breathing, there's mindfulness of the elements, there's mindfulness of postures, there's mindfulness of daily activities. So I want to read just a few lines from the sutta to just give you an idea of just how specific the Buddha was. So this was with regard to the postures. When walking, one knows I am walking. Real complicated, isn't it? (laughs) When standing, one knows I am standing. When sitting, one knows I am sitting. When lying down, one knows I am lying down. Or one knows accordingly, however the body is disposed. But do we do this? It's so incredibly simple. It's just to know when we're standing. We know we're standing. We're back in the moment. We're not ahead of ourselves. When we're sitting, when we're lying down. Again, with activities. When going forward and returning, one acts clearly knowing. When looking ahead and looking away, one acts clearly knowing. When flexing and extending one's limbs, one acts clearly knowing. When wearing one's clothes, one acts clearly knowing. When eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, one acts clearly knowing. When defecating and urinating, one acts clearly knowing. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent, one acts clearly knowing. This is a very important section of the Sutta what I just read, because the Buddha is emphasizing the importance of continuity of clearly known, continuity of awareness. In whatever we're doing, whether we think of it in terms of the posture we're in, or whether we think of it in terms of the activity we're engaged in, Are we settled back into the moment in that very easeful way? It's not a straining. It's actually a relaxation into the moment. But can we keep and practice the continuity of that throughout the day? That really takes practice. That takes a strong intention to do it. Because it's so easy. You know, we're sitting in the hall, bell rings maybe you know we're really mindful for the first 2 minutes after the bell we do our bow and then <laughs> out the door and maybe you're going to your walking spot maybe not maybe you're going back to your room to do something but how often are you really mindful all along the way and again it doesn't have to do particularly with how fast or slow, although slowing down a bit helps. It has to do whether that intention is there. That in every moment, in every activity, each step, we're present. This takes practice. <laughs> you know, Even though it's so simple, we haven't been trained in this way. So I would really encourage you, this retreat is just, it's designed for this. You have nothing else to do. So do it. <laughs> I mean, one of the most beautiful aspects of practicing in Asia, and it was particularly—it uh, was practicing in Burma. It was particularly the Burmese women yogis. Just to—it was so beautiful to watch how they moved. I didn't know whether it was some kind of cultural thing, but it was just beautiful. They took such care with each movement. So it was really inspiring. Yeah, you can do that. But it takes that settling back, that relaxing. Okay, so following each set of instructions, and as I said... In each of the foundations, there are many different exercises to do. So with the body, it's the breath, it's postures, it's activities, it's the elements, which are the sensations. After each set of instructions in the sutta, as I've mentioned, there is this refrain where the Buddha tells us how to practice with each of these various fields of experience. And as I said, the refrain is repeated 13 times in the sutta. And the refrain includes three specific instructions with regard to each of the objects of meditation. So whether it's the breath or the body or feelings or the mind, the refrain follows each one. And there are three three sets of instructions in the refrain of how we should practice. And so I wanted to just go over, not in too much detail, what those three elements of the refrain are, because the Buddha is saying, this is how you should practice. So he first says to observe whatever the object is internally, externally, and both. Okay, so we generally think of meditation as being internally. We're quite familiar with what that means. You know, we're, we're aware of the sensations in our body or thoughts or emotions or feelings. I think that part is pretty clear. But what does being mindful externally mean? It's really important to understand this. because it's the only way of making our practice of awareness comprehensive. So, it really includes everything in our experience. One of the most overlooked arenas of mindfulness externally, and one that has enormous consequences, for what's happening in our minds, is mindfulness of seeing. Now, seeing, for almost everybody, unless one is visually impaired, seeing is perhaps the most predominant sense experience we have. We are living in the world of what we see. But on meditation retreats, usually and certainly in our lives, it's not very often that we're reminded to be mindful that we're seeing, right? Because we we keep on, you know, turning our attention inward. But the Buddha is saying, be mindful internally, externally, and both. So I'll just give you an example of how powerfully transforming this can be, and. I've told this story many times. It goes back quite a few years in my practice, being on retreat. And I just noticed being on retreat, whenever I would be going into the dining room, you know, mealtime, my mind would just be filled with comments and judgments about almost everybody I saw They're walking too fast. They're walking too slow. I like what they're wearing. I don't like what they're wearing. They took too much food. They didn't take enough food. (laughs) I mean, ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. But (laughs) that has no bearing (laughs) on what the mind does. (laughs) And I tried different things, you know, to (laughs) kind of quiet it down. And there are different techniques one can use. But the most effective the one that freed the mind most immediately and quickly from that whole pattern of judging and commenting, I started, every time I just started stepping into the dining room, I started noting seeing. That's all I did. That's all I was being mindful of. Seeing, 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 seeing. In that mindfulness of seeing, there was no room for those comments and judgments. It was so simple and it was so revelatory that it was simply when I wasn't being mindful of seeing that it triggered all of these responses. And in that situation, they were fairly innocuous, although ridiculous. But very often, we are responding to what we're seeing with much stronger emotions, much stronger reactivity this very simple extension of our practice, just to include seeing, mindfulness of seeing. And, and the note is really helpful periodically or even frequently as the reminder of seeing. So I really suggest you do that and you'll begin to get a sense of what mindfulness externally means. When we're not mindful externally, it is so easy to get lost in the comparing mind, you know, when we see others. We might see others being very mindful and the thought, oh, I'm such a terrible yogi, look at them, they're being so careful. Or we might see somebody who seems to be acting and moving very carelessly. They're such terrible yogis. I'm really pretty good. And our minds just do this. And actually, this this tendency of the mind to compare is not uprooted until one is in our hunt. So this is a deeply rooted habit pattern. It's going to be with us for quite a while. So we want to learn along the way. How not to get so caught in it and lost in it. Being mindful externally is the key. So I would really recommend it as a practice. It's tremendously liberating. Okay, so that's the first instruction of the refrain. Be mindful internally, which we're familiar with. Be mindful externally. And that could be all of the external. I was just using the example of seeing. Be mindful of both, internally and externally. The next instruction in the refrain is the precise doorway to liberation. So it's, it's a powerful instruction. It says, Be mindful of the nature of arising, of passing away, of both arising and passing away, of whatever, whatever the object may be. This trains our mind to be aware not only of what it is that's arising. You know, sometimes we get so fixated in our practice on what the object is, you know, in recognize, oh, it's this, it's this, it's this, which is important. But the Buddha's saying, that's not enough that we need to be paying attention, whatever the object is, to the nature of its arising, its passing away, both its arising and passing away. This is what's keying us in to the great truth of change. When we were practicing with Saira Upandita, was a very demanding teacher, in our reports we would often have to describe what was happening in the sitting and walking, what different experiences were arising, but also we would need to report what happened to that object as we observed it. So, that, so for example, sitting, feeling the rising fall, feeling of tension arose. Okay, became aware of the tension. Then what happened to the tension as I was feeling it? It got stronger, it got weaker, it disappeared, it shifted position. It's not that it should have any particular outcome. It's just, are we aware of its changing nature? And so just holding that question in mind, just from time to time, as different objects are arising, hold the question, well, what happens to this, as I'm aware of it? What happens to the thought? Does it continue? Does it disappear? Does it fade away? Does it end abruptly? In order to know this, you really have to be paying quite careful attention. It can't be sloppy. And so, just having the question helps to refine the quality of our awareness. And we begin to see directly. So, it's not just. When the Buddha is saying, be aware of the arising, the passing away, both the arising and the passing away, this is not a throwaway line. This is really important. This is the essence of what frees the mind. Because we begin to see... Okay, I need to just back up a little bit. The line that I'm about to say in the, in the suttas, very often people heard this line and got enlightened. <laughs> okay. So here's your big chance. <laughs> whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. It's so simple and so profound. Whatever has the nature to arise, well, what is that? Everything. Absolutely every aspect of our experience, whatever has the nature to arise, thought, feeling, sensation, emotion, sight, sound, everything that has the nature to arise will also pass away. But we have to see that. I mean, to know it intellectually is not difficult. We can understand that quite easily. But are we seeing that? So this is why the Buddha is saying in the refrain, 13 different times, pay attention to this. I I want to read just a few... Reminders of this uh, from different traditions, uh, and so just as a way of imprinting uh, your minds you know as deeply as possible with the truth and importance of this, there was a great Tibetan yogi, his name was Shabkar he lived I think it was like eighteenth century Tibet, and he was one of these wandering yogis and there's a book of his teachings and a lot of the teachings are in the form of what are called songs and he was really communing with nature and in this one particular uh, teaching he's having this dialogue with a mountain flower and so he and the flower are talking to one another. So these last lines first the flower says to him you don't understand anything. <laughs> you know, and and then the flower goes on with a whole discourse on change and impermanence. So this is the last these are the last words of the flower to Shabkar. Among all the activities of samsara, there is not one thing that is lasting. Whatever is born will die, whatever is joined will come apart, whatever is gathered will disperse, whatever is high will fall. Having considered this, I resolve not to be attached to these lush meadows. Even now, in the full glory of my display, even as my petals unfold in splendor, you too, while strong and fit, should abandon your clinging. Meditate in solitude. Seek the pure field of freedom, the great serenity. That's the message from the flower. From the Buddha. Fully knowing the arising and passing of the aggregates, one attains joy and delight for those who know this is the deathless. Fully knowing the arising and passing away. So how do we fully know it? All we have to do is be present. All we have to do is be aware because things are arising and passing by themselves. This is not some... meditative state we have to create. It's simply settling back and seeing how things actually are. Everything all the time is arising and passing away. The Buddha is saying, pay attention to that. Pay attention to that aspect. And it's very interesting. In your practice, watch to see how so much of the attention is on what it is and how often we're missing the aspect of its changing. So give importance to that. And then this is from Lady Sider, who who's one of the great Burmese masters. He said, not seeing arising and passing away is ignorance, while seeing all phenomena as impermanent is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. These are all powerful statements. Not seeing arising and passing away is ignorance. Okay, we have to take that in. While seeing all phenomena as impermanent. While seeing all phenomena. This is the important point. Because we know that everything changes. But are we actually seeing the impermanence? That's what our practice is about. And we can see it with whatever's arising. We don't have to wait for anything special. Whatever it is, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. That's what we want to be seeing. So it's immediately and always available to us. This is why the Buddhist teachings are so beautiful. It's just so precise and direct and explicit in what we need to be doing. Okay, so it's being with things internally, externally in both, seeing the nature of arising and passing away. The third instruction in the refrain is one that I've already talked about a lot in the last couple of mornings. It's that statement the Buddha made, mindfulness, that, and then in quotes, there is a body. And then in each of the foundations, it's just, there is feeling, there is the mind, there is The hindrances. So here it's just using the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge or clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. So in the interviews today, many of you mentioned kind of the usefulness of just using that frame. There is a body. So the Buddha is highlighting the importance just to the extent necessary. For clear knowledge. So it doesn't take much effort. It's just remembering. And in that frame, we can be aware of things arising and passing. Within that frame, the different sensations come and go, the breath comes and go, sounds come and go. Okay, so the Buddha concludes this refrain. And again, he's repeating these instructions many times in the sutta, these three aspects internal, external in both, seeing the arising and passing in both, mindful that there is whatever it is just to the extent necessary for clear knowledge. So in conclusion, he says, he's reminding us in quite, to me, an inspiring way of the benefits and fruits of practicing in this way. He says, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. So that's the fruit of putting these instructions into practice. And one abides independent. And I take that to mean, and one abides freely, not dependent on things. One abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. So this is really a reminder of what our practice is all about. All the instructions, all the methods, all the techniques are all in the service of not clinging. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. So that's the fruit of putting these instructions into practice. So I'd just like to close with... One teaching from Zikar Kongchul Rinpoche, a contemporary Tibetan teacher. He says The potential for realization is universal and present for all of us. True benefit will come from your own efforts in realization. For your efforts to bring benefit, you must take your life into your own hands and examine your mind and experience. From this point of view, nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you, or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path of liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It's up to you that's that's our call to
0: practice thanks everybody for listening to Joseph Goldstein's Insight Hour we appreciate your support and ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com Joseph and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which MindPod and Joseph will receive a small percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon. Thank you.